This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, October 7th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the program today, Michelle McQuig and Juwita Gupta will be here and will join me for a special news panel on National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Karen McKay will be here from the Center for Equitable Library Access and describe this year's nominees for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. And Michael McNeely drops by. He's got a review of the new round here on a Friday, wrapping up another week on Tuesday. Uh, one other note that I have to put out there. Happy birthday, Mom. My mom's birthday today, so hope she's having a great day. We'll give her a buzz a little bit later on. Now let's get to our top news story of the day, and that is Alberta news, Alberta political news, as Alberta has a new premier, Danielle Smith captured nearly 54% in the sixth ballot of the United Conservative Party's leadership race. She took the stage shortly after the results were announced and promptly took aim at the federal government. Albertans, not Ottawa, will chart our own destiny on our own terms and we will work with our fellow Canadians to build the most free and prosperous country on earth. Smith, who replaces Jason Kenney, has proposed an Alberta Sovereignty Act, which would allow the province to ignore federal laws and court orders deemed not in its interests. Smith also reminded party members that she will fight any future federal health mandates dealing with travel and vaccines. No longer will Alberta ask permission from Ottawa to be prosperous and free. We will not have our voices silenced and censored. We will not be told what we must put in our bodies in order to work or to travel. During the summer-long leadership campaign, candidates fought mainly over the best way to fight with the federal government. Now, as Smith delivered that dramatic political comeback last night, winning the leadership almost eight years after, after she decimated the movement with the epic floor crossing she uh, she had, uh, picking up 54% of the vote and beating, among others, Brian Jean, who placed third in the vote. But Jean says he's ready to work with Smith. No longer will Alberta ask permission from Ottawa to be prosperous and free. <laughs> Gene said he's going to uh, wants to see the wording of Smith's proposed sovereignty act before he decides how he votes on that. Now, Todd Lowen, a former UCP backbencher, says he's ready to support Smith as well. 
support the, the Sovereignty Act. When I look at the Sovereignty Act, and I, I guess, you know what, going back, what, what I've seen is a lot of misrepresentation of that Sovereignty Act. The Sovereignty Act allows Alberta to say no to Ottawa. Now, Lowen was kicked out of the UCP caucus for criticizing Kenny back in 2021. He was voted back in this week and says he will be in attendance when Smith meets with her caucus today. In Ottawa, Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre is facing pressure over a misogynistic tag that was embedded into videos of his popular or on his popular YouTube channel. Global News reports that a tag that stands for Men Going Their Own Way, or MGTOW, was embedded into many clips on Poitiers' page. The Liberals are calling for Poitiers to apologize, but the opposition leader pushed back during question period. I condemned this organization, and I corrected the problem as soon as it became known to me, Mr. Speaker. But I condemn, I condemn all forms of misogyny. Poilievre went on to accuse Justin Trudeau of misogyny and racism, citing his firing of Canada's first female Indigenous Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould, in 2019. And finally, the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize have been announced. This is a special report from ABC News. I'm Brian Clark. This year's Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to three individuals and groups. First, the Belarusian human rights activist, Alice Bialyatsky, who is currently detained without trial in Belarus. Also winning Memorial, the Russian human rights organization and the Ukrainian human rights organization, Center for Civil Liberties. Again, the three winners of this year's Nobel Peace Prize just announced in Oslo, Norway, the Belarusian human rights activist, Alice Bialyatsky, Memorial, the Russian human rights organization and the Ukrainian human rights group, Center for Civil Liberties. I'm Brian Clark. This has been a special report from ABC News. So a little bit of news for you to kick off the show. Let's get to our daily poll section of the program. And we begin with yesterday's poll question. What is your favorite hobby? We threw out arts and crafts, music, gardening, or other. And uh, 40% split between arts and crafts and gardening. And other going at 20% of the vote yesterday. Uh, Today's poll question is all about this long weekend. It's Thanksgiving weekend, and I want to know, and I'm asking this because I heard this conversation yesterday, what protein, what meat are you throwing in the center of your Thanksgiving dinner table? Are you going with turkey? Are you going with ham? Are you going with a roast, maybe pork or beef? Or is it a no-meat Thanksgiving so I've heard of people using uh, tofurkey, serving a, a, a turkey, uh, a tofu turkey. Uh, I've heard of people having complete vegetarian or vegan Thanksgiving meals as well. So I'm wondering what you plan on having on your Thanksgiving table this weekend. Let's start with uh, Eliza this morning. Eliza, what have you got planned for this weekend? Well, Mike, I am Team Tofurky. Mm. <laughs> um, I've been I've been vegetarian for I think a little over ten years now, and for some reason, um, the making of the protein that goes on the center of my table, the vegan protein, uh, has been left up to me. There are a couple people in my family who do eat meat, um, and so for them, they kind of they get a chicken. We used to kind of do turkey for them, but then 
with it only being two of them, it just was way, way too many leftovers for them to take home. They would literally be eating turkey for two weeks. So nowadays we have a, a small chicken and the vegan thing. So I like to experiment and switch up what we have. One year was the tofurkey, another year was homemade vegan fried chicken. Um, but this year it's going to be a very fancy mushroom wellington. Ooh, interesting. All right. I'm very excited. I, I am team turkey always and uh, forever when it comes to Thanksgiving. In fact, we do uh, Canadian and American Thanksgiving, so I get a couple of turkeys uh, within uh, a month and a half of each other, which is fantastic. Um, but uh, I am, listen, I don't want to get too deep into Thanksgiving traditions yet because we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the show with uh, Alex Smythe. But I do want to find out from Alex. What team he's on here? Is it turkey? Is it ham? Is it roast? Is it no meat? Alex Smythe, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you doing? I'm great. So what are you putting in the center of your Thanksgiving table? Yeah, so my family dynamics, it's almost like the inverse of Eliza's. So unlike having only two meat eaters at her table, we have two vegans. Uh, So my brother and sister-in-law are vegans. So our primary um, protein is turkey, but then they will have a tofurkey, especially for Thanksgiving. But whatever the meal is, if we decide to do like a ham, then there will be the the uh, vegan ham substitute. They, we try to match it so it's kind of the similar profile, taste, flavors, things like that. Uh, but yeah, so for most of us, we'll be eating a, a beautiful turkey, but there will also be a tofurkey for for my brother and sister-in-law who, who are vegan. You know, it, it got me to, to sort of pose this question because yesterday I heard people debating a turkey versus ham. And, you know, I'm okay with an Easter ham. Thanksgiving to me is not a time for a ham. But the conversation then just completely did a 180 and went to somebody arguing that ham was horrible, that it was the worst, that they never <laughs> want to eat ham. And I was like... I, okay, ham may not be a regular thing. It might only be something I do a few times a year. But there's, you know, to say to, to write ham off the menu altogether, I thought that was a little extreme. Yeah, ham, ham's a great uh, protein. I, I typically for my family, it's an Easter thing. Uh, like you yep. said, you know, a couple times throughout the year, you'll do do a big ham. But I mean, you, you, you can have ham on your sandwiches. You can have... Yeah. You know, a, a nice, like, just a slice of ham fried up in a pan for a quick meal with some cheesy noodles. There you go. I mean, it's it's a great protein. It's versatile. You can put mustard on it, ketchup on it. You can mix it in with a casserole. Come on. My grandmother, needs more respect. My grandmother made the best ham salad sandwiches. She had the there perfect, perfect blend of mayonnaise and mustard. It was just like, oh, Beautiful, beautiful memories of my youth, the sandwiches that my grandmother would make. Uh, Alex, thank you very much. Appreciate it. We're going to get into Thanksgiving a little bit deeper with you later on. Stick around, though. Not going to go far here, but want to remind you, you can vote on our poll question by going to Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or go to Twitter and vote there at Accessible Media. Alex is right back at it here with your national weather forecast. We got Alex. What are we going here? 
Can I do the weather? Sure, I can do the weather. Absolutely. That happened to me last week. I know exactly where Alex is at right now. Uh, we're going to begin in St. John's, Newfoundland. Scattered showers this morning and a high of 14 degrees. We're going to move on to Halifax, Nova Scotia next. Foggy this morning, turning to mainly cloudy skies and a high of 18. Montreal, mainly cloudy. Scattered showers throughout the day and a frost advisory there. A high of 16. In Ottawa, cloudy with a 60% chance of rain. 10 degrees is the high. Toronto, a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 11 degrees. Let's move to Thunder Bay next. Cloudy with a mix of, uh, well, maybe mixing in a bit of sun later on in the day. The high is 8 degrees. Saskatoon, sunny and a high of 20. Into Alberta next. And it'll be sunny and 21 in Calgary. It will also be sunny and a high of 21 in Edmonton. As we go to the northern part of the province. Heading to Yellowknife, clouds rolling in, some showers late this afternoon and a high of 10 degrees. Vancouver, we'll see a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 20. And Victoria, B.C., a mix of sun and cloud and 21 is your high. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Coming up after the break, Michelle McQuaig and Joanna Gupta will join me for a special news panel. We're going to discuss National Disability Employment Awareness Month. That's coming up next here on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, who is away today. And we are getting set for a long weekend. Now with Dave Brown, we'll be returning on Tuesday. We'll be off on Monday. It's a special edition of the Friday News Panel. And I'm happy to welcome back to the panel, Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Mike. And uh, Joita Gupta is here as well. Good morning, Joita, host of The Pulse. Good morning, morning, Mike. It's great to have uh, both of you here. Now, we're going to do a deep dive into employment to mark National Disability Employment Month uh, or Employment Awareness Month. Uh, There are a lot of stats out there, obviously, that you can point to when we talk about a lack of inclusion in the workplace for people with disabilities. Only 59% of working age Canadians with a disability are employed. Now, that number does not include the number of people with disabilities who are underemployed. So there are all kinds of angles that we're going to get at here. And let's just sort of start here, all right? Can we have a conversation about disability employment without even acknowledging the lack of government supports for people with disabilities who are (laughs) unable to work. Michelle, I'm starting with you. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead. There's a couple things to acknowledge here and say, no, I I don't think we can have that discussion without at least acknowledging it and talking about that because there are so many connections between them. Uh, The fact that money gets clawed back for those who are on any kind of social assistance, if they have any other source of income, those clawbacks are very real. They pose huge hurdles to anyone who is trying to come up with a more secure financial future. Uh, It limits a lot of employment opportunities and access. So yeah, I think it is a crucial conversation to have in this context. The other thing I just wanted to uh, acknowledge off the top is the irony, I suppose, 
or just the very fact that I have extreme privilege on this subject. The fact that I can sit here and talk to you about employment comes about because I have a job, which makes me one of the more fortunate ones in this demographic. So I did want to acknowledge both those things off the top. Absolutely. Uh, Joanna, what about you? I think I agree with Michelle because it's really hard to have a conversation about employment for disabilities without also acknowledging being the impact of uh, the social assistance regime that we are living in. There's a lot of overlap between the programs and the clawbacks that Michelle mentioned is often a huge disincentive to people with dis disabilities going out and finding and finding work. I'm wondering, um, given your personal experience, both of you, um, has there ever been something an employer has been able to do to make you to 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 make you comfortable to to sort of make you confident um, in your work from an accessibility perspective? Yeah, absolutely, actually. Uh, so another component I feel is relevant here, and this pertains to my experience, is the fact that my disability is very easy to categorize and not heavily stigmatized. And it's immediately visible when I walk into the room with my guide dog. Everyone knows, oh, here's a totally blind person. So the question of accommodation is a pretty straightforward one for me. And I recognize that that is the case for a lot of people. That said, I clearly recall when I went in to interview at the Canadian Press. I was still in, in journalism school. This was for a summer internship. And I went in there, and it was a very long, extensive process with a lot, with a lot of questions about the journalism. But what really made me feel like I might be heard here is there were more there were more people in the room than I now know would otherwise be the case. And after all the journalism questions were done, there was a lot of conversation about what my needs would be. People asked not only about you know what screen reader I use specifically, but how it works. They, they really wanted to understand the process, and I was happy to walk them through that kind of thing. Um, not only did they make any of those arrangements that were discussed in the interview, but I just, I, our old office system used to have a security setup where there was a keypad that would re-scramble every time. And everyone had an access code, but because the keypad would scramble, there was no way to know exactly where the numbers were. I had been hired for a four-month internship, and they had no guarantees that I wouldn't flame out after those four months. But nonetheless, they had gone ahead and installed card readers in the elevators, at the newsroom doors, and the washrooms, basically just for me so that I would have full access to the place. That got me off on a really, really positive foot with CP in terms of accessibility, and they've been really great about that ever since, I have to say. Judy, what kind of experiences have you had from you know, that, that, that sort of that positive angle? All right, we don't have audio on Juita right now, so we're going to work on reconnecting there. We got you, Juita? No, we've got we've lost audio there. So we will work to reconnect Juita. Um, meantime, Michelle, um, you know, I, I I hate to go down this road, but um, you know, with with all the positivity, there can sometimes also be some negativity. So I'm wondering if you've ever run into a situation where an employer or a prospective employer has made you feel like your accessibility needs would not be met. 
Uh, not so much on the employment front. And I think I chalked that up to what I talked about before, about the, the, the visibility and the lack of stigma around my disability and the fact that accommodation conversations aren't tough for me. But where I think another a number of people do run into access on the road to employment is possibly in school. I remember distinctly being told not to take certain courses uh, or or having professors express surprise and consternation that I was in some of their classes. Um, that attitude is not always very uh, conducive to feeling confident that you're going to be able to complete what you're setting out to do, especially if you're training in a specific program for a specific type of role. That said, actually, now that I think more about this, I was actively discouraged from pursuing journalism, but that was by someone outside of the school where I actually went. When it came time to actually embrace those studies and pursue those jobs, that's where I had more success. But that discouraging attitude and people saying, you can't possibly do this job because you have to be able to shoot video or you have to be able to look around the scene and, and report what you're seeing. Uh, those attitudes were there. I just really got lucky, I think, in, in not having to engage with them directly in the workplace or in my educational experience. Now, clearly, I mean, you, you've been extremely successful in, the, in your career. Um, but I'm wondering if there were... Um, if you can sort of describe your path, I mean, you go from that, that, that really great start with CP to where you are now, you know, gone through a couple of promotions now, uh, you know, with a, with a much bigger business card because of a longer title, um, <laughs> you know, and I've seen, I've been, I've been watching that growth as well. So it, it's been really impressive, but what's Thank that you. journey been like for you? It's been kind of surreal, to be honest. Uh, I, I recognized all along my good luck here, and this is and it's it sounds weird to talk about good luck in the context of somewhere where I have put in a lot of work, and I will never shy away from saying that I have worked very hard at this job. But luck has been a big part of it, not just in terms of the, the supervisors I got who who were supportive and who were open minded and willing to give me a shot. Uh, getting some of those interviews in the first place, having a journalism school that was willing to take me on and 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 do an experiment because this was what that was for them was giving me a shot and and trying something that they had not tried before. So I've gotten very fortunate in terms of coming up against people who were willing to help rather than hinder my own efforts. And my good luck really came home to me even more as I began reporting. I didn't always report on disability issues for a long time. I actually steered away from doing that. When I finally leaned into that and, and began doing it in earnest a few years back and started appearing on AMI more often, that's when I really got the broader context, context excuse me, of exactly how ridiculously lucky I was. The fact that I have a situation that lies outside the stats that we keep hearing. Not only do I have a job, it's a full-time one, and it's in the field I train for. That shouldn't be as much of an anomaly as it is, but it is, and I'm aware of that, and I feel incredibly fortunate because of it. We've got Juita relocated and plugged in. How are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, okay, so give me, um, so we were, we were asking you about some positive experiences. I also asked Michelle about maybe some negative experiences. So I'm, I'm going to throw those both at you at the same time. And you just talk a little bit about your journey because yours is like impressive because you held down your regular full-time job all the while coming to work here and then, oh, just, you know, a little stint at CBC among others. I mean, it's, 
I don't know how you juggled it all at the same time. People ask me all the time, how do you do so much? How do you keep it all together? I don't know. I just watched you eat it and see what she does. You have no friends. <laughs> it's true. Um, I want to say that I've been very blessed with uh, hearing what Michelle is saying and having this um, a very similar experience with people who were willing to go the extra distance to mentor me, to support me, uh, who didn't really look to me as someone who couldn't do things, but really saw in me someone who was employable and did have skills uh, that was brought to the, that that uh, that I could bring to the table. When I interviewed for my job, my full-time job at the not-for-profit, and I've been there for like 10 years now, um, one of the questions they asked me, and I think I actually bombed the answer, to be honest with you, but one of the questions they asked me is, in what way would you say your disability contributes to the work of the organization? And it was a really incredible question to be asked. Because often when we think about disability and we have conversations about disability and employment in particular, we're having very negative conversations and understandably so. You know, the underemployment rate and the unemployment rate being what it is and the association with workers with disabilities largely considered, and I don't say this is accurate, but the perception is that they're unskilled or un unemployable. So to be asked in an interview setting about the advantage that I would bring or the benefit that I would bring to the workplace by virtue of having a disability, it gave me pause because it wasn't just about here's an employer that's willing to accommodate me. In fact, um, I went down that road. I said, are you asking me about my workplace accommodations? And they said, no, we will have that conversation when you get the job. We're not worried about that's not the conversation we want to have at the interview at the interview we want to hear from you about what it is that you bring to the workplace as an employee with a disability and I have to say that that is the no one has ever asked me that ever I've never been asked that question again and I wish more people would ask it not just ask it to candidates at interviews but ask it when they're making decisions about who it is that they're actually hiring I had a great guest on the pulse uh, Hannah Thompson as a scholar and a writer, and she talked about this thing called blindness gain. And so I'm gonna take that concept and run with it a little bit and say there's disability gain, in that there are things that you discover about your workplace, your processes, your software, and all manner of other things that don't become evident as problems. Maybe you aren't even serving the clients or covering the news stories you should be covering because you don't have the right people in the room. So that was a really good first step and I've really been encouraged to think about uh, improving and modifying the way we deliver our services and do the work that we do from a disability standpoint though not exclusively I've worked on a bunch of other issues and yes I mean it was it was kind of dropped in my lap I have to give all credit to Paul Daniel who's a producer here uh, for having the generosity of spirit to see something in me that he felt was worth nurturing and giving me the opportunity to work at AMI. And I've had wonderful mentors along the way and people who have looked to be very gracious with feedback and support. So I've really had a good journey and gotten to do all the things I've ever wanted to do. Uh, I've worked in the field that I wanted to, that I've been trained in, uh, but I've also gotten to, to realize a childhood dream and a passion. Really, you can't ask for more. Now, uh, if I can talk a little bit about the downside, where I and I suspect others have run into problems in the workplace is once you're in the door, 
you realize that a lot of workplaces weren't designed for people with disabilities, surprise, surprise. Uh, Michelle had that great example about the elevators. But the one that I'm gonna give is a little bit closer to home in that many uh, companies use proprietorial software and things that are just flat out inaccessible. And that's when it became very tricky to have conversations about employers needing to change software, especially in a not-for-profit context where they don't have large budgets to go about you know, mo making modifications to things. And so they would often just say, well, okay, just don't do this or, you know, do less of this and do more of the other thing. Uh, and so really the barrier that I've come up against is not so much attitudinal as it is uh, built into the infrastructure of a lot of workplaces relying on often very outdated software, which is just a complete dinosaur when it comes to accessibility. We are going to take our first time out, but we've got so much more to talk about here as we discuss the employment landscape for people with disabilities. That is where we're going to continue the conversation when we come back after this quick break. It is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave. We expect Dave back here on Tuesday after the Thanksgiving weekend. And speaking of Thanksgiving, I am very thankful. We are very thankful to be uh, working with a whole bunch of pros around here. In case you haven't figured it out yet, we're having some technical difficulties today that we are plowing through. The show must go on. Doesn't matter. It's Friday. We don't take the day off. We're going to fly through this. And we're going to we're going to work through it all, but uh, we are working at it behind the scenes, so we appreciate your patience and appreciate the patience of Joita and Michelle, who are working through this with me uh, alongside here. So when we were wrapping up our last segment, Michelle, Joita was talking about that proprietary uh, uh, software issue oh, and, and equipment oh, yes. issue, and, and you wanted to, to sort of just circle back to that because of an experience you had. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it's such a good point that Joeta raises, and it's one that does not get discussed that much. Uh, as Joeta was saying, if once you're in the door, people assume that that's that. But no, that's not the case. But what I have to tell is a, a good news story about how that situation can evolve if you have enough buy-in from the employer. So that was very much the case. When I arrived at Canadian Press, there was all kinds of proprietary software in place, some of which worked with JAWS, some of which definitely did not. And for a long time, that I, I created extra work for editors by virtue of the fact that I could not file through our normal content management system. I would have to write it in you know, a notepad file or a Word file and email it to people, and then they would have to reformat stuff because of... Anyway, it, it was a whole process. And that went on for years, and it actually limited the jobs I could do uh, in terms of editing, because if I couldn't access the, the rest of the content in the system, there was only so much I could do with it. Uh, fast forward, you know, 12 or so years, 2018 or thereabouts, and there's finally talk of introducing a new content management system at Canadian Press. And there was a consultation group right out of the gate. I was not part of that group, but some of my friends were, and they started sounding the alarm about accessibility right away. And CP took that seriously, and they took it to the developers they were working with on this other content management system. 
who acknowledged, well, no, we've never really thought about accessibility because there haven't been any disabled people in the newsrooms that we've dealt with, or screen reader users, I should say, in the newsrooms that we've dealt with. But that's cool. Let's do this. Let's work with your screen reader user and make it accessible. And that is exactly what they did. They did a lot of back-end work with me, uh, beta testing, all of that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, the proprietary software Canadian Press has become more accessible over time. So at the same time as I'm working with developers to build a content management system that can be rolled out across other newsrooms that is more accessible, and it is now, I was also finally able to hone my editing skills. And without access to those content management systems and the real content there, I would never have had a chance to work on my editing skills, and I definitely would not have the job I have today. So proprietary software can be a huge barrier, but if the right attitudes are in place, really cool things can happen. Let me just circle back with both of you. The first thing I asked about from the beginning was uh, the fact that there was a lack of government supports for people with disabilities who are unable to work or underemployed. Um, so let me bring it back to that and just ask each of you, and I'll start with Joita, uh, what do you think uh, can be done at a policy level to ensure that people with disabilities are not underemployed? I think we start with the social assistance program. And as Michelle pointed out, and I alluded to as well, the way it's set up right now is the instant you start working, uh, you start to experience clawbacks. And that system, the way it's set up right now, is so punitive that it can be a massive disincentive to people. When I got my first job, it wasn't you know a full-time job. I was a relief worker. That means they called me in when they needed me. And so some months I'd get you know a lot of work, and then there'd be other months when I had no work. And so what happened with that ODSP payment was they would inevitably overpay uh, because I was filing my, uh, my little stub and saying, hey, no, look, I actually had you know, X number of hours of work this week. But because it wasn't a consistent amount, inevitably we fell into that hole where I had been overpaid. And the fact that you might owe the government and you may as a person with a disability someday God forbid, be in a situation where you need to be on social assistance again, but have not paid out your outstanding debt. It is a terrifying prospect to have that safety net taken away from you. The other big problem with the way the transition is bungled from social assistance to a paid work is often for employees with disabilities. And we're, you know, both Michelle and I uh, have visible disabilities. Um, I'm not sure if Michelle has any chronic health conditions, but I, I don't think I have any that prevent me from working a full-time job. But for people who have severe chronic health conditions, sometimes they can only work one day in the week or half a day in the week. That's all they can manage. But the way our social assistance system is set up right now, it might actually be more expensive to go into the office compared to the wage you're bringing home. So it really depends on the kind of disability you have. And the last thing I'll say about the social, social assistance system is that a number of workplaces try but don't often provide health care benefits to people with disabilities. And that can be a huge impediment for people with, again, chronic health conditions. If you need expensive medication and you're not on a company health plan or you don't have private health insurance of some kind, you rely on health insurance from ODSP and navigating that process, not to get the income supports, but just to have the benefits from everybody I've heard across the board. It's an unequivocal nightmare. Now, my experiences are based with Ontario Disability Support Program. That's the one that I am most familiar with. Uh, but I would hazard a guess that these problems uh, happen to take place across the country. But if there is a province that's getting it right, 
and they're managing the transition to paid work better, I would certainly like to hear about it. But generally, there's been great dissatisfaction with how social assistance um, programs, in fact, keep people poor and prevent people with disabilities who might be able to work from seeking full-time employment. Michelle? I agree with all of what Joita said. Uh, you're right, Joita, to, to guess that I don't have any other chronic conditions uh, besides my visible disability, which is has been a huge help. And on top of what you talked about in terms of chronic illness, I, re I refer also to people with episodic disabilities. Their work situation might change a lot depending on what's going on with their disability at a given time. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of recognition for that in the way that social assistance programs are applied. I don't have much to add to anything Joita said on that front, other than to say that I have yet to hear of any province that has a nice smooth process and where people feel empowered by that particular program rather than barely sustained by it. Um, another little just small wrinkle I will add is that some some provinces have the means of, of providing some assistance to people to keep up with technology for their disability. A lot of those programs need some serious overhauling and this is one that I think has a bearing on employment to some degree and that it, it, having the right kind of tech enables people to, to look for work, to keep their skills sharp, to say nothing of all the independent living benefits that come with that, that that don't have to do with employment. But there needs to be a, some major rethinking done on how some of these programs are executed. Programs, for instance, that don't support or cover smartphones are just like so antiquated, I don't even have the words for that. Uh, find me a single person who won't claim that a smartphone is one of the most crucial tools they have today and find me a workplace that won't acknowledge as much too. So that's a, another area where I would like to see a little bit more uh, advancement and progress made in the, in the months ahead. Let's talk briefly about the employment landscape out there because that is changing uh, right across the board. Some advocates and programs uh, have as <clears throat> their aim, their goal, uh, to empower people with disabilities to start their own businesses. So I'm wondering about that as a strategy, how you guys feel about that, and if you're aware of people who've gone out and done just that. Juita? Kevin Shaw, mind your own business. Kevin is just an incredibly versatile, smart, and talented person who this is what he does. He creates mentorship opportunities for people with disabilities, uh, entrepreneurship opportunities. Really, he should be the person talk he, he about entrepreneurship and disability. Um, he has, I think it's a really good idea if you've got the stomach for it, which I don't. I need to have my paycheck coming in, you know, however many times a month, and I need the reliability of knowing it's going to be there. Um, and I don't want to have to hustle in that way. But I think there are a lot of people with disabilities with impressive skill sets that have the fortitude to create opportunities for themselves and do things that they really love uh, by being self-employed. What I would like to see on that front is greater support for people with disabilities and entrepreneurs in general. Uh, many were hard hit during the pandemic. I would hazard a guess that the people with disabilities uh, who are self-employed were especially hard hit because, you know, you were getting nailed on both sides. Uh, but I think maybe making efforts towards access to easy financing and other forms of support for entrepreneurs with disabilities would go a long way in helping people to not just start a business, but to eventually be able to scale up. Michelle? 
Yeah, strongly agree with everything Joita said. I think it actually sends a really great empowering message that we don't hear a lot. When we talk about employment, we there seems to be a bit of an assumption that a lot of the, dis the disabled employees or prospective employees are going to be coming in at pretty entry level or low level positions. And we definitely don't hear a lot of talk about advancement through the ranks. And we certainly don't see people with disabilities represented very broadly at the upper echelons of most organizations. So having a message of, of, of real entrepreneurship and empowerment to do, do something yourself kind of runs counter to that message in a really good way, I think. And I think it's a wonderful message to send. It's not one that I could ever really avail myself of. I, uh, I'm like Joita. I, I like the stability. I definitely don't have the entrepreneurial spirit. I don't even think I could hack it as a freelancer, if we're being completely honest. <laughs> um, so it wouldn't be my particular path. But I think it's great to have that option open and I hope it uh, I hope it expands and I hope a more importantly that a lot of those businesses succeed. Judy, you used the word hustle and that that's where we're going next and and just the whole idea of how the gig economy works and and people who've got these quote unquote side hustles. I I hate that term it, I don't know. It just sounds bad as far as I'm concerned. But it's the term that people throw out there. Do you have a side hustle? Is it something you've ever thought about? And do you, do you consider any – because like someone like me who's got – who does two, three, four different things, I don't consider them side hustles. But do you consider anything you've ever done as a side hustle? Not a chance. I haven't – even when I've actively tried to consider things side hustles, I haven't been able to because – I really love the work that I do. I'm mm. very emotionally invested in the work that I do. It's not just a way for me to make, quote unquote, more money. It's often a way for me to do something that I'm really passionate about. I work on the news panel or I put out the pulse first and foremost because I want to be on the news panel and because I want to see the pulse succeed because I really believe in a long form interview show for people with disabilities that airs coast to coast to coast from Canada and beyond. You know, if I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't do it. And similarly, I work at a housing not-for-profit, not because I couldn't have worked somewhere else if I had so chosen. It's because I believe in housing as a human right. And it's very hard to boil down your life's work and your passion to a side hustle. Uh, because as you said, there is a there's a twinge of something negative, as you said, Mike. I actually, I'm glad you said it because I, I don't think people, the people kind of fling that term around mm -hmm. very carelessly and they don't consider the implications of calling something a hustle because for a lot of people, the quote-unquote side hustle is the way that they're paying their bills. It's in fact not a side hustle mm -hmm. anymore. And really the fact of the matter is you can make that arg argument and I'll grant you that for a lot of people with disabilities, the flexibility and the ability to work more when you can and less when you can't, you know, all of that is fine and dandy, but side hustles or contract work um, and these, you know, that model of being an independent contractor has replaced so many full-time jobs with benefits that people, that we've seen those jobs disappear and we've seen the side hustle crop up. You know, think about Uber as a good example. We used to have cabs and cabbies and they did this, you know, day in and day out. And that industry has been, I wouldn't say decimated, but certainly seen a significant uh, downsizing because of Uber where you've got drivers basically being able to hop into a car and get on the app and drive. I mean, there was an interview on Metro Morning, and the woman said, base, uh, who uh, who was interviewed said, if you have a pulse, you can drive an Uber. Wow. Michelle? Except for except for people with disabilities. Yeah. Again. Yeah? 
Um, this is where I think it's really interesting to, to talk about how this is another element of employment in which this demographic has been left behind. There's a lot of assumptions around who can do side hustle work. Some of it would act. I think it'd be great, for instance, to see if there was a wheelchair user who wanted to run their Uber with an accessible vehicle, because we just don't have that many of them. But that would be one person in a huge pool. Impact would be limited. And that would be seen as, as something cool that just happened rather than something that the company was actively pursuing or actively prioritizing. This would be one person's initiative to try and do this because they have the means to do it. A lot of people don't. So I think any discussion of the gig economy uh, has not yet caught up to the needs of people with disabilities. I mean, it has, frankly, those needs haven't even been fully accounted for in the mainstream job market, let alone the, the, sure. the gig economy. So. Sure. It's it's another sort of point of, of frustration for me. At the same time, I if you're talking about side uh, jobs, side gigs, mm -hmm. other than Uber and the like, that could be a way to address some of the issues that Joita and I raised before, the faced by people with chronic disabilities or episodic disabilities. Um, as it might provide them with some of the flexibility that they might not have in another setup, but. The stars really have to align for that. And there has to be more elements of luck, I think, for most disabled Canadians to succeed in securing the kind of employment that they need and want than there should be. We're going to take our final time out here of the news panel when we come back. I want to talk very briefly about the return to the office and get your thoughts on people going back to the office and what employers can do to incentivize those people to go back to the office. That's coming up next on the Now with Dave Brown news panel here on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross along with Michelle McQuig and Juwita Gupta. Special news panel as we're talking about Disability Employment Awareness Month. And I want to wrap up with both of you by asking you briefly here about a broader sort of question. Because now we're, we're at a point now where after a couple of years of pandemic restrictions and workplace uh, you know, closings, uh, working from home, a lot of offices now want people to come back to that in-office work environment. And so the, these employers have to take sort of steps and, and offer incentives in bringing people back. And I'm wondering um, what what you think some of those incentives would need to be to get people to come back to the office to make that more palatable? Michelle? I think that's kind of the million-dollar question, and I'm not sure if I have an answer to it. I know that so many employers are really struggling with this, and I don't know if anyone has really found a winning formula. I'm not even sure if there can be a, a broad one. I think any winning formulas have to be sort of built around the, the workforce that's in place and the culture that's in place at, at a given company. Um, I will say that I think flexibility is something that people are, are valuing more and more. We talked about that in the context of employees with disabilities, but I think that's true everywhere. I think people would like to have some say over when they can come into the office. Uh, if an employer, let's say, has an expectation that people come in 
X number of days a week, I think people might value a chance to, to say when those days can be, uh, if, if it has to suit their, their childcare schedule or their their own personal health needs or whatnot. I think that's one that people would, would, would really value. Um, some employers I know have also incentivized things by, by changing office locations and moving into sort of smaller, more nimble spaces. Sometimes they're more centrally located. Um, and that has worked for some people I know to, to make coming into the office a little bit more attractive if they're coming into a new space or a more conveniently situated one. But I don't think that would necessarily be applicable across the board. Um, those of you who follow the the antics of Dave Brown Consulting know that I am not the idea guy. This is not my, <laughs> my forte. So I, I, I but I, this is an issue that I'm watching with interest because I'm not sure if anyone has really fastened on a winning formula yet. Julina? Many people with disabilities would actually push back and say that working from home has made it possible for them to work at all. And so the first thing I'll say is that the the, that returning to the office may not be for everybody, and employers have to be very sensitive to that, especially when we're dealing with employees with disabilities. Many of them may have taken the job with the understanding that they'd be able to work from home in perpetuity because that's what they need in order to work uh, with a disability. With that caveat in place, um, a lot of Michelle, my points have already been covered by Michelle, hybrid environments where you come in a few days a week having some flexibility about uh, which day of the week that is. But there are other things that, I mean, there are other things that employers could do uh, that, I mean, if I was being asked to go back into the office, which nobody has asked me, uh, really, but there are other things that they could ask me, uh, they could do which would make it more palatable for me. Moving into a more centrally located office would be nice, uh, but also things like uh, if you drive a car, compensating for gas. If you're not having to go into the office, if it was previously possible to do your job from home and now you're going in to do the same job from the office, maybe, you know, putting a bit of money towards your gas or validating your parking, uh, you know, for the day. Or, you know, if you really want to be generous and I'm spitting out ideas, maybe, you know, throwing a couple of vouchers for lunch at a local restaurant, you know, make it worth my while because people are really happy to mingle with their co-workers but let's face facts you, if you work from home and you were able to do your work, job from home you may be scratching your head as an, a worker and saying well why do you want me to come back in the office because suddenly I'm having to rush around in the morning and I'm having to pack coffee and make a lunch and drop the kids off at daycare if I can just sidestep that and keep doing my job without all the stress of, of the commute why wouldn't I do that so employers have to be really creative about it uh, to try and attract workers to go back into the workforce in person. It has been a really interesting conversation. I'm afraid that because of some of the technical issues that we've had, we're out of time on this one. But uh, there's still lots that uh, we can discuss moving forward. And I'm sure Dave would love to jump into this conversation with both of you. I appreciate both of your patience and uh, your understanding here today. Thank you very much for joining me in this conversation. Joita, thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Happy Thanksgiving. And to you, Michelle, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks, Joita, for pitching this panel topic idea. It was fun. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio, and Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Our number one of Now with Dave Brown is in the books. We're going to have our number two just around the corner, so stick around for that here on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. 
on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave for Friday, October 7th, 2022. Dave is away today. Coming up in the second hour of the program, Karen McKay will be here from the Center for Equitable Library Access and will describe this year's nominees for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. And Michael McNeely will be dropping by to share a review of the new drama film Breaking, starring John Boyega. That lots more coming up in the second hour of Now with Dave Brown. But first, let's get to your regional news. We'll begin in British Columbia. The BC government says a cap on delivery fees charged to restaurants by food delivery companies introduced as a support measure earlier in the COVID-19 pandemic could become permanent. The Ministry of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation says a 15% cap was first introduced in December 2020 in response to restaurants being charged fees as high as 30%. The measure also prohibits delivery companies from reducing driver compensation. The cap is set to expire at the end of the year, but the government says it has introduced legislation allowing a permanent fee cap that would limit the fees delivery companies can charge to no more than 20% of the cost of an order. Unseasonably warm and dry conditions have prompted the province of BC to upgrade the drought rating for several regions to level fire the highest on BC scale. That means adverse effects are almost certain. The change covers the lower mainland basin, including the Metro Vancouver and Squamish areas, along with the Sunshine Coast and the western part of Vancouver Island. Areas one drought level lower include the rest of Vancouver Island, the region east of Metro Vancouver, stretching from the Fraser Valley to areas north of Pemberton, the Kettle Basin east of Kelowna, and the entire northeastern corner of BC. To the prairies, modernizing technology at Manitoba's auto insurance crown corporation is going to cost taxpayers more than expected. Project Nova, which aims to let customers do more business with Manitoba Public Insurance online, was originally expected to cost about $86 million. That price tag has jumped to $115 million last year, and the opposition New Democrats say the final bill could reach $224 million. Kelvin Gertzen, the minister responsible for the Crown Corporation, says replacing the older system is a bigger project than originally thought. In Ontario, Toronto voters can begin casting municipal election ballots today. Advanced polls in the city are to open today and run until October 14th. Different municipalities may have different advanced poll dates. Voting day for Ontario Municipal Council and School Board elections is set for October 24th. And Ontario's Ministry of Health says a problem with the provincial COVID-19 vaccine booking portal has been fixed. However, it's unclear exactly when the problem started and how many people were affected. Some available appointments were hidden and people hoping to book shots reported being unable to find any despite authorities insisting there was an available supply. Critics are wondering if the problem discouraged some people from getting vaccinated. And finally, in the Atlantic region, thousands of homes in Nova Scotia are still without power nearly two weeks after post-tropical storm Fiona blew through Atlantic Canada. Nova Scotia Power said yesterday its work has been complicated by many single customer outages which the company says can slow its progress because at least one crew is required to restore power to one customer. 
As well, the utility says the remaining work can take longer when heavy equipment is needed to remove trees and debris, and several crews are required to do the work. On Prince Edward Island, nearly 9,000 homes and businesses were still in the dark by yesterday afternoon. And a new report says Nalcor Energy did not ensure the best use of public money when it was managing construction of the Muskrat Falls hydroelectric project in Labrador. The province's Auditor General, in a report released yesterday, criticized Nalcor's management of discretionary expenses and its use of embedded contractors. Denise Hanrahan's performance audit identifies several areas where Nalcor's policies did not align with provincial policy. As a result, Hanrahan says the corporation incurred unnecessary and excess expenses. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Now it's time for a sports chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, good morning. Good Friday morning. I have my Blue Jays cap sitting on the desk. I am ready for some playoff baseball. How about you? I am ready for it as well. And I got to say, I saw the uh, Facebook post this morning. Love the hat and uh, the supporting of the hometown team. So very cool. Uh, Looking forward to this matchup, Mike. Uh, It's going to be a good one. Today's opening pitching matchup is Luis Castello who is eight and six for a regular season record and Alec Manoa, who is 16 and seven. So a very uh, different records, uh, but playoffs is a whole different animal. I kind of found it amusing, Mike, when uh, Alec Manoa was asked yesterday uh, about pressure and how he's feeling it. And he said, quote, pressure is something you put in your tires. I'm not worried about it. Um, so very interesting there. I'm interested in your thoughts in this series. What you think is home field advantage really as big as it's being made to seem in this series? I I don't see how it can't. Um, that stadium with the roof closed is is raucous, and it'll be a full house. And if you talk to anybody who was there the last time, the last couple of times they've been in the playoffs or who were there back in the nineties when they were in the world series, they will tell you that there isn't a building in the city of Toronto that gets louder than the dome when it is closed and full. So I think there's the the crowd is absolutely a a big part of this. I did kind of chuckle when Manoa yesterday talked about uh, pressure is something you put in your tire. He also said that he got that 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 mindset and that mantra from his one of his house league coaches, and that that kind of that made me chuckle too because, you know, it, it just speaks to the confidence that this guy has and is not afraid to put out there. Now, of course, if he goes out there and lays an egg, then like. Social media is going to be unforgivable. The memes of of tires and flat tires are, are going to be flying left, right, and center. If he goes out there and throws a gem, um, I think the guy's basically got tire companies lining up left, right, and center for endorsement <laughs> deals. So uh, it could go either way. But Manoa's this is a guy we've heard about for a long time, right? I mean, yeah. any any big trade the Blue Jays have been rumored to be a part of, you know, just a few years ago. 
that was the 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 name that every team wanted thrown into the deal, and the Blue Jays said, uh-uh, not happening. And uh, Blue Jay fans have to be thrilled with the fact that this guy is coming of age here in Toronto. Yeah, it's funny because Alec has this tendency to coin his own phrases. If you recall a while back when there was a little bit of a uh, bench-clearing situation, he told the Yankees, well, if you want to come fight, come past the Audi sign. And if you're not familiar, (laughs) there's an Audi sign that's on the uh, New York Yankees field that uh, would signify coming onto the field. So he has a way of coining these phrases and putting it together. He kind of reminds me, Mike, of a Marcus Stroman, but minus the attitude of Marcus Stroman. Uh, Alec kind of has the, the edge, but he knows how to tame it and keep it on the field. And he kind of pitches and shows himself with what he can do on the field versus off. And I think that uh, Stroman sort of crossed that line from time to time where you saw the attitude come through beyond the field. So that's how I sort of compare the two. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, today. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, Robbie Ray potentially starting on Saturday against the Blue Jays. It'll be fun to watch. There's all kinds of storylines in this series. Uh, and to sort of add to this, storyline situation mike with the regular season now over would you put any weight on john snyder and what he does in the playoffs whether that includes an extension or not i i think as far as i'm concerned that's that's already a fait accompli i think john schneider is going to be back as manager of the blue jays and and will be will be named permanent manager Regardless of how this goes down, I think the players have just bought in to him. He knows these guys. He's come up with these guys, you know, through the minor leagues. The last time uh, the the core of this team, um, you know, guys like Bichette, guys like Guerrero, the last time they were in the playoffs in in their baseball career was with John Schneider as as manager. So I, I think. You know, this is it's completely inevitable. I think a deal absolutely gets done. Um, I, I just feel like it's been a while since um, since we've seen sort of a, a no-nonsense baseball guy at the helm of the, of the Jays, you know, and, and sort of go back to John Gibbons, and, and you, you, you kind of have that same feel with, with – the current interim manager of the Jays. But again, as you made that comparable between Stroman and, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Manoa, I'm going to make it between um, Schneider and, and Gibbons. And that Gibbons had a lot, of, a lot of swagger and confidence. Schneider has that confidence, but a little bit more withdrawn. And, and he sort of picks his spots. And he does it very well. So I think no matter what happens with this postseason, I think he's back. And I'm going to give the audience and you some food for thought. The last time in Toronto that we've seen a coach and or manager, whatever title you want to put on it, go from the assistant chair to the head coach, that resulted in a championship with Nick Nurse. So I don't know, maybe there's some... Good juju going on in the water. There's a long way to go in the uh, playoffs. But, hey, you never know. Maybe uh, 
maybe switching chairs would would be a good thing. We'll see how it goes. But I'm with you 100%. I think it's a, um, you know, it's a completed thing. I know there are some guys out there uh, needing jobs who have some credibility. Um, Joe Madden, uh, Mike Matheny, who was just fired by the Royals, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Girardi, they're all there. But again, I would I would lean more towards the guy that you know and the guy that has the team already there, and that's what you want to go with versus the one you don't know and bringing in new systems. Because if you want to keep some guys around, you want some consistency, and that goes into the coaching staff as well. All right, so give me your prediction on the Jays and Mariners. My prediction is that I think the Jays uh, win both the games. They win both the uh, first two games, and it's a uh, finish complete in uh, two games and done, and we move on and play the Astros. I'm with you on that. I, I think that they pull it off in two games. I don't think it's – there's no question in my mind that uh, the uh, pitching staff that they're going to throw out there, the offense is there, so it's not an issue for me. Uh, we got the Rays and Guardians, the Phillies, the Cards, and the Padres and Mets. Just briefly, what are your thoughts on those series? Who's going to win there? Uh, I personally think that the Tampa Bay uh, team is going to have some struggles. Um, I think they've – They've struggled down the stretch. I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. I've got to give the edge to the uh, Cardinals as well in that series. Uh, I just think they're a uh, little bit more of a complete team, possibly Philadelphia as well. But the Cardinals are the team that sort of plays um, interesting baseball. And so they they know how to do the small stuff. So that's going to be a series of who does the small ball just a little bit better. So Lots of good series coming up. What about you? I'm going to go with the Guardians uh, beating the Rays. I, I mean, the Rays are good, but the Guardians have been really good. Uh, I'm going to go with the Cardinals, and I'm going to go with them because of uh, Albert Pujols, and uh, everybody just wants to see a little bit more Albert. And, of course, you can't you can't argue the Mets with 101 wins on the season are going to dispatch the Padres, I think, without any problem. Uh, that'll be and a, speaking a two-game of- set. Speaking of the Mets, you're looking at uh, Marcus Stroman as well. Yeah, absolutely. There. All right. So. Well, hey, listen, looking forward to some baseball and some afternoon baseball for us uh, in Toronto. Enjoy it through the weekend and happy Thanksgiving, Brock. Thank you for the sports chat. You as well. And best to you and your family and all the audience out there. Thank you, buddy. There goes Brock Richardson, host of the Neutral Zone with our sports chat. Time for a check on the weather with Alex Smythe. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, there's showers this morning, turning to a mix of sunny clouds and 17 is the high. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's a mix of sunny clouds and a high of 18. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's a mix of sunny clouds as well and a high of 18 as well. In Quebec City, Quebec. Showers throughout the day and possible thunderstorms this afternoon, so be sure to watch out for that. There is also a frost advisory in effect this morning, and the high is 17. In Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds, with more clouds rolling in later in the day, and 11 is the high. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds, with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and a high of only 7. In Brandon, Manitoba, It's beautiful, sunny, with 12 as the high. 
in Regina, Saskatchewan, it's sunny as well, but the high is 17. In Lethbridge, Alberta, continuing the trend, it's sunshine with 19 as the high. In Red Deer, Alberta, sunshine as well, and the high is 20. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's mainly sunny, and the high is 16. Over in Kelowna, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds, hazy, and 22 is the high. And finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds, becoming hazy this morning, and 20 is the high there. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, Michael McNeely will be here and he's going to share a review of the new drama film Breaking, starring John Boyega. That is coming up next. Now with Dave Brown continues on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI, excuse me, AMI-TV. It's got to be a Friday, right? Got to get out of here. Start the weekend. Uh, But not before we check in with Michael McNeely. He's got a film review for us. And this time, uh, it's Breaking, a new thriller based on a true story. And Michael joins us from Kingston, Ontario this morning. Michael, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It is great to uh, reconnect with you. Give us the premise of this film and how accurate it is to what transpired in real life. So, essentially, this film is a retelling of the story of Brian Brown Easley, who was an Iraq war vet and came home with several disabilities. So he was receiving a disability pension from Veteran Affairs. This is the United States. He was receiving a disability pension. And apparently one month, he simply did not get paid because the Veteran Affairs decided to pay a college instead, thinking thinking that Brian owed money to the college. So long story short, he did not get paid. He did not have enough money. He was th- he was facing homelessness on the street. Um, and because he didn't really have any direction to turn to, he decided to rob a bank. So he robbed the Wells Fargo of his town. Um, but ultimately, one of the surprises of the film is that he wasn't asking for a lot of money. He was just simply asking for what he was entitled to from Veterans Affairs. So he was just asking for $892, uh, an amount that the tellers could have quickly given him if they hadn't known what was going on. So, Mike, just to answer your second question, I do believe that this story is very accurate. It's based on an article about this very tragic event. Now this is a star that fil- that uh, or rather film that stars uh, John Boyega and Michael Kenneth Williams. What do you think of them and their roles? So to start with Michael Kenneth Williams, who unfortunately has passed away, this was his last film. I I kept looking at Michael. I kept wanting to freeze him on the screen just so that he would live longer. 
you will probably remember him from The Wire and many other many other great performances. This one is no exception. And it's just very sad because he was starting to just grow a gray beard. Not sure if that was CGI or whatever makeup, but I think it was probably a real gray beard. It's unfortunate that he didn't get to live with that beard for very long. Um, John Boyega is Della as Brian Brown Easley. Um, John is just a mixture of nervousness, of twitching, of anxiety, also of caution bravery, because he he knows that he's probably not going to get out of this alive. But he still wanted to, you know, demonstrate his principles. I mean, we can't we can't necessarily agree with those principles of Robert Bank, but we can sort of sympathize with why he did what he did. PTSD symptoms is something that you recognized in the main character of the film. Do you mind elaborating on that? Yes. So because Brian went to Iraq, he did two tours in Iraq. He was shot. Um, I believe he was shot, but maybe not injured because of the shooting, but injured of something else. Um, essentially, when he when he robs the bank, or when he starts to take the teller's hostage, he is very much aware of what's going on around him. He believes that right from the very beginning, there's a sniper, which doesn't make any sense because he just robbed the bank maybe two seconds ago, so there wouldn't have been time for a sniper to come. But that that rationality is gone. Um, so what you're looking at is Brian is very, um, very anxious, very paranoid, very delusional, but also you can, you know, you can sort of snap your fingers and then all of a sudden he'll be very coherent, he'll be apologizing to the tellers for putting them through this very stressful event. I wouldn't be surprised if the tellers got PTSD themselves. Um, so you just kind of see that, that kind of change. You kind of notice the PTSD in Brian when, when he's speaking really quickly, when he's speaking in short sentences when he just doesn't know what's going on. Um, and when he yells and when he screams, and so every sound could set him off. So that, that, that makes this film extremely tense. It makes it very uncomfortable to watch at times because what would you do in that situation? How would you help Brian? And how would you help yourself? And so how does the film make the audience understand or relate to Brian's actions? I believe so, because by the end of the film, the tellers are more or less on Brian's side. As I mentioned, once they discover that Brian just needs $892, they're very quick to want to give it to him. I know that, you know, it, it's easy enough for a bank to give you $892. Um, they understand that Brian has a principle that he's trying to fight for what he believes in. They're unfortunately just cut in a crossfire. Brian did not want to harm anyone. That was not his intention. Um, there's a plot twist at the end that I won't wound for you, but I'm sure you can guess based on what I've said so far. Um, th this unfortunately is just one method or one man's method of trying to get what he thought was owed to him. But 
he he went about it in such a way that he's probably not going to get out of it alive. What did John Boyega say about the filming process and how he got into the role of his character? So John, John did a lot of research on mental health. He researched PTSD. I believe he didn't meet with members of Brian's family to understand why Brian was the way he was. And um, he also worked with Michael um, Kenneth Williams. So they, they do have it as scenes together in the movie because Michael is playing the negotiator outside of the bag. So there's no reason why those two wouldn't meet, but they still talk to each other to build a rapport. I think that's extremely nice because I think that really helps with the chemistry on screen. So, and then I think um, the way that John internalized the PTSD was that he would have two personalities at any given time. He would have the personality where he was calm and rational and thinking things out, and then he would switch over to the manic personality, to the paranoid personality. I think that works very well for this kind of film. Um, I think it's realistic. I think it's 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 definitely there's definitely flashbacks to Iraq. There's definitely lots of sounds going off. There's a lack of control. So I think John did his research and he was very diligent in making sure that Brian was not a stereotype or a character. In your opinion, what could this film have done and have improved on? I think the film is pretty good, but I think I would have liked a little bit more contrast with the with the police outside. Just a little bit more scenes of what they were doing, because we do get scenes at the end, but it just felt like a little bit too late to understand what the actions were. So, for example, if you think about movies like Dark Day Afternoon or Inside Job, other bank, other bank robbing films, you kind of go back and forth. So there was a little bit less back and forth than I would have liked, but I do understand why it's important to be with it's important to be with Brian inside the bank. All right. Here's the question that everybody has on the tip of their tongue, Michael. What score are you giving this out of ten? I think I would give it eight out of ten. And just for those people who think eight out of ten is, is not that great, it's a four out of five is the equivalent. So perhaps we'll have to change our scores to out of five. This film is worth checking. This film is worth checking out, especially for its commentary on the injustices of how we treat veterans in our society and also veterans who are people of color. Um, also, it's also a topic that is probably near and dear with a lot of us here at AMI because it's related to disability pensions and how how we could be, you know, disadvantaged or in a very bad position if we don't get the disability pension for that particular month because we, we rely on those so heavily. So thank you, Mike, for letting me showcase this film, and I hope that all of you will enjoy it. Michael, thank you very much. Great to talk to you as always, and wonderful to have another opportunity to see Michael Kenneth Williams on the screen. Really appreciate it. Michael McNeely with a review of Breaking, which is available on demand. The film is rated PG-13. Don't go anywhere. We've got more Now with Dave Brown right around the corner here on AMI-tv. 
now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross, filling in for Dave. Great to have you here on a Friday as we get set to take off for a long weekend. I hope you will get some time to enjoy Thanksgiving weekend. Don't forget our poll is out there, our poll question. What protein is at the center of your Thanksgiving dinner table this year? And want to talk a little bit more about Thanksgiving. And uh, I want to welcome in our roundtable guests. Nisreen Abdel-Majid is back. Good morning. Good morning. We've also got Ramia here. Good morning, Ramia Muthan. Morning, Mike. And Alex Smythe, this is your this is your topic, sir. Uh, where do you want to go with Thanksgiving? Yeah, so I want to build it, as you uh, said, Mike, off of our, our poll question of, Really, what is in the center of everyone's table this Thanksgiving? Uh, for me, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Thanksgiving is the only holiday where it consistently it has to be turkey or turkey-like um, protein. As I, I mentioned to my, my brother and sister-in-law are vegan. So instead of having the turkey that I'm going to be having with uh, the rest of my family, they're having a plant-based turkey uh, protein, but it still has to revolve around that theme. I can't have ham on Thanksgiving. I can't have uh, roast or, or any other protein. It always has to be turkey for me because that's just kind of the tradition. And it's unlike any other holiday. So I want to find out from everybody else. Uh, we'll start with you, Nisreen. Like, what is the uh, the main centerpiece of your meal this weekend? Uh I'm going to be honest with you is probably pizza. <laughs> um, most of my family is traveling. My parents are out of town. Um, so usually we do get the family together. Um, my sister comes home and, and everything like that. So it does become like a family day for us. But since this year, you know, everybody's just traveling or just out of town, we're me and my sister are probably going to do a small Thanksgiving pizza <laughs> slash wings night. What if there's a local pizza place that will make a turkey shaped pizza? You think? There you go. Mm. Right. There yeah, you thinking go. outside of the box. Make that a thing. Let's yep. yeah. Let's push that. There's <laughs> got to be a there's got to be a company out there that has thought about maybe marketing that. I don't know. Uh, I've never thought of pizza for Thanksgiving, but. Why not? Why not? Absolutely. Hey, there's all kinds of like traditions. Cooking. Yeah, you can start your own tradition, right? Ramia, what about you? I, You know what? So many years, uh, me and my friends from high school have kept in touch from the for the special holidays. So we'd get together and do Friendsgiving, and every year it'd be different. We've, we'd upgraded a couple of years to turkey and, you know, making food and all this stuff. But so many years, Nisreen, like you, we've just done pizza and wings because it, it was just a time to get together. But now, um, this year... I've actually done turkey once already. We had an early Thanksgiving with a couple of friends last weekend, and that was really fun. Uh, I lied. It wasn't turkey. It was chicken, but it was the first time I stuffed anything ever. So it was interesting. And then with the family, we do – because we didn't grow up with the traditions – I talk about this every year. Because we didn't grow up with the t traditions of Thanksgiving um, turkey, my family and I, we do – something like we do sides and a main meat of some sort my mom is vegetarian so there's always something for her but it changes like we've done turkey one year we did prime ribs and the next year we're doing ham like all these kind of things but it's not necessarily a um the center piece the center meat has to be turkey like in your life alex it's just 
something. Like, let's do something fancy for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you want to have a, a nice meal and a nice get together when that's right. a thing too. And, and 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 like for my family, you know, my my mom's side is all German, so it's like we'll have the traditional turkey, but then we'll have like German potato clays. We have red cabbage. We have all these other kind of yeah. fixings that, like, you know, for many people, it's like that's not a Thanksgiving. Like, where's the candy <laughs> yams? It's like, oh, pass me the the soft doughy German balls that would throw a lot of people off. Uh, but uh, be, beyond the food, like I, I know you mentioned it, Ramya, where it's these types of traditions of, okay, you get together with friends. Are there other traditions that you guys kind of have or, or try to embrace during this time of year? For me, it was whenever we got together with family, it's usually on a, a Saturday. It was like, okay, I always know because my, my dad's side of the family, they're huge college football fans, especially the Notre Dame fighting Irish. Anytime we got together, the Irish game was going to be on. We we're going to have a meal around it, but everyone's going to be watching that or watching hockey, things like that. So, uh, Mike, I'll start with you. Like, do you have other like auxiliary traditions that formulate around the meal with Thanksgiving? Yeah, absolutely. We used to have uh, the uh, the annual Thanksgiving Cousin Bowl. We it was a football mm-hmm. game that, where all the cousins would play uh, a, a touch football game. We even had a we actually had a trophy for it and everything. Uh, nice. But but sports. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's the same for us. Like whether it was. Uh, watching uh, a football game, whether it was, I can, I I have this clear memory of watching Robbie Alomar hit his home run off Dennis Eckersley uh, in the ALCS against the Oakland A's. Um, you know, and, and we were all sort of sitting around in, in my grandparents' living room waiting for dinner, and we watched Alomar hit that home run. Uh, hockey games, certainly preseason games that are that are happening, but football and baseball playoffs uh, are absolutely a couple of things that go hand in hand with Thanksgiving for us. And uh, I want to uh, go back to you, Nisreen. I know you talked about usually it's getting together with family. This year it's a bit different because everyone's traveling, but did you have other type of like traditions or, or things that you do around this weekend? You know, uh, same thing with Ramya. I grew up... Um, uh, not celebrating Thanksgiving as, you know, the turkey, the big uh, family gathering and stuff. We just do immediate family, things like that. But last year, uh, for the first time ever, I did a Friendsgiving night, and it was super nice. Like, we we did the sides. We, we went all out. We did the candles and everything. We had a fancy, fancy <laughs> dinner. And we're like, you know what? Let's do this tradition. Guess what? Some of them moved. So that's a fail. Um, but I want to start a new tradition. So guys, let me know if you have a new tradition that I, I could start. Nothing new on my end. We usually, yeah. a lot of the time, you know, we don't have time to go back home uh, for Thanksgiving. So we end up doing it with friends pretty much every year. But just like you, a lot of our friends have moved away for work yeah. or for, for new, just a new place to live. So this year it's just going to be the two of us. And, and by the way, I don't mind a whole bunch of uh, leftover Turkey. I love, just love the Turkey soup, the Turkey chili and the Turkey yep. sandwiches that I get to make mm-hmm. for the next week ahead. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of, uh, lots of good Turkey coming our way. I always order a bigger Turkey than we need for just the two of us, just because I love all those leftovers. Great conversation. I want to wish each and every one of you a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Alex, for bringing this to the table. Thank you, Nisreen. Happy pizza giving. I hope, <laughs> hope you enjoy it. And, Thank you. 
And uh, Rami, I want to find out with you from you what's coming up on uh, Kelly and Company Thanksgiving Weekend Edition. Yeah, leftover pizza is not bad either, eh, Mike? Say again? Le- leftover pizza is not bad either. Oh, no, absolutely. With your leftover turkey. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, great. So Deezer can now, this is an app that can now identify songs that you hum and I feel like I've been waiting for this for a really long time. You know, what's that song? What's that song? So John Beeler is going to tell us uh, more about this and how accurate it is. Thunder Bay Superior North MPP Lisa Vajoli uh, participated in the social assistance diet for two weeks. We're going to find out what this diet is and what the MPPs um, all thought about it. Plus, the audiobook Kiss and Tell, co-produced by Kevin Hart, one big comedian out there, is newly trending, and Ryan Huey is going to give us a review on it. My problem with music identifying apps is I never get them open fast enough, and the song's over. Oh, uh, true. The song's moved on. Like well, you're, now- watching, you're watching a TV show, and you hear a song, and then I finally get it open, and the scene changes, and the music's over. Yes. It's true, but if you if you have an iPhone, you can just tell Siri, like hold down the ah. Siri button and ask her what you're listening to. So it's the fastest one I've figured out. Yeah, I got an Android. That's my problem. Oh, that's, sorry, then. That, that's sorry, what, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I hear that all the time. Hey, have a great show. Have a happy Thanksgiving, Ramya. Thank you for today. Thank you. You too, Mike. All right. Ramya Muthan and Kelly and Company comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. And when we come back after the break, Karen McKay is going to be here from the Center for Equitable Library Access. We got this year's nominees for the Scotia Giller Prize. That is coming up next, now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, who is off today. And every other week, we check in with someone from the Center for Equitable Library Access to fill us in about the latest available accessible reading material. Today, we're speaking to SELA Communications Manager, Karen McKay. Hi, Karen. Hello, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Great to have you back here with us on uh, a great Friday. And we're going to start with, uh, uh, you're going to tell us about a writer named David Robertson, who's really having a a month to remember here. He won the TD Canadian Children's Literature Award and has been appointed to a job within the publishing industry. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so folks will probably know David Robertson. He's written a number of books, some for kids, some for um, young adult readers, and also for adults. Uh, And he's been around in the Canadian literary scene for mm, two decades now, I think. Um, So he's set to become the editorial director of a new children's imprint dedicated to publishing Indigenous writers at Penguin Random House Canada. And what I think he's going to bring to this job and to this role is that he has a very nuanced perspective um, to the work. He's really well-respected. He's award-winning author. He's won numerous awards. Um, But he's also had his work challenged by at least two different school boards. And so he's really aware of the kinds of barriers and roadblocks that Indigenous authors face. I think he'll be able to nurture like a really diverse collection of stories and authors. We know how important it is for kids to see themselves in literature. Um, But if they're not Indigenous, in this case, we also know how important it is for all of us really to be able to connect with uh, really diverse and authentic characters because that's the way that we develop empathy. And so I'm really thrilled that he's in this position. I can't think of a better author to to lead this 
um, this new initiative. And I think that he'll bring a real um, authenticity and, uh, you know, a real, um, I'm, I'm struggling for the word, but I just, I'm really excited about the, the prospect of this new publishing venture. It sounds like the impact that, uh, that he's going to have is pretty, pretty tremendous. I imagine that it will be, and I think it'll be a, a nice shift. To, um, you know, some Indigenous literature, we, we get a lot about um, stories from residential schools and, and, you know, really often very heavy things. And I think that he'll bring a diversity of stories um, to to our attention, which I think is really important. Now, I think the last time you and I spoke, we were talking about the Scotiabank Giller Prize. We were talking about a long list, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. But now we've got the short list, which was announced for the best Canadian novel, graphic novel, or short story collection published in English. So who made that list? So there's five on the short list. And what's interesting about the short list is that um, women actually dominate this year's short list. And there is uh, two short story collections and three novels. And two of those novels are debut novels. So we have a really interesting collection. So the first one I want to tell you is Kim Fu. And she has a short story collection called The Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century, which contains 12 wildly imaginative stories that bring together science fiction, fantasy, and even some crime fiction. The second one is the other short story collection. It's by Rawi Hodge, and his stories take us around the world to Montreal, Tokyo, Beirut, Berlin. The characters are all sort of restless travelers who are looking to find authentic connections. And then we have We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies by Tezrin Yazom Lama, and it's a complex and profound debut novel about a Tibetan's family through um, journey through exile. Suzanne Marr has a novel called The Sleeping Car Porter, which is about a queer Canadian black sleeping car porter who has to serve white passengers when their travel plans go awry. And the last one is Noor Naga. She has a, a debut novel, If Egyptians Cannot Speak English. And this book traces the story of two lovers as they return to Egypt following the Arab Spring. So a really diverse collection of books. I'm really excited to see who comes out the winner on this one. And that'll be November 7th, right? Is I believe the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the announcement date? Yeah, there's a big gala. I think you can watch it online, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, very interesting. And the, if you go to the Scotiabank Giller website, they have um, something called Between the Covers. You can get tickets to hear the authors speak. Uh, they do a lot of um, promotion around this, and so there's lots of ways to interact with the books and with the authors. ScotiabankGillerPrize.ca is that website if you are interested. Now let's talk Sela featured titles, and as, as always, we like to wrap up our segment with you uh, going over some featured titles. And this week's theme is all about observing World Mental Health Day, which is coming up on Monday. So what recommendations do you have along those lines? So I picked a few that I thought folks would be interested in. The first one is called Notes from a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. And it's the follow-up to a very successful memoir he had called Reasons to Stay Alive, where he talks about his own mental health struggles and his own um, suicide ideation. So in this book, he sort of takes a step back and he takes a look at the societal, the environmental, and the cultural influences on our mental health. So his observations are that we're, I think it's common knowledge, that we're living in an increasingly um, challenging world that makes our minds ill. It's so we have to live through, uh, you know, too much information. We have all sorts of things coming at us. Um, there's cri- climate crisis. There's obviously COVID. 
So he, when Matt sort of developed his panic disorder and anxiety, he took a long look at the ways that all of these external factors were impacting him both positively and negatively. And this book is his collection of observations. So he takes a look at everything from inequality to social media and the news to things like how we sleep, how we exercise, even the distinction we draw between our minds and our bodies. One of the things I really like about this book is that it talks about the fact that um, reading is a really fantastic way to provide an escape and an opportunity to think immersively without distraction, something that he argues our minds really need. He also does a fantastic job of intentionally deconstructing the idea that mental health or mental illness is a weakness or a flaw and needs to be something that's shameful or secret. He's very, very open about his own struggles. And so he addresses all of this topic with a, a, an authenticity and a, a writer's observation that I think is really an important part uh, to bring to this conversation. So I highly recommend this one. Now, we've also got, uh, along with notes of a nervous planet, maybe you should talk to someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed by Lori Gottlieb. Yeah, so Lori Gottlieb is a best-selling author. She's a psychotherapist, and she's also a national advice uh, columnist. And this book is, um, at its core, it's funny, which I think is something we need to bring to the discussion about mental illness, is that, you know, there are ways to um, to infuse humor, and humor is a, an excellent anecdote. So um, this book really is about Lori's life as a therapist, and then she's meeting with all of these somewhat quirky clients in, in Los Angeles, and then her fiancé breaks off their engagement, and she realizes that she's struggling to cope. Cope. So she goes to her own therapist named Wendell, who she says he's rated essential casting. He's got a balding head, a cardigan, wears khakis, but he's actually very has a very profound impact on her life. So this book alternates between Gottlieb's experiences on both sides of the couch as a therapist and as a patient. We get to meet some of her patients. There's a self-absorbed Hollywood producer, a young newlywed diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, a senior citizen who's threatening to end her life, and a 20-something who can't stop looking up with the wrong kind of guys. And so her experience guiding these folks towards their through their own therapy, uh, she starts to, to, to reveal that the questions that her patients are struggling with are actually the ones that she's also bringing to her own therapist, to Wendell. So what I love is that through the process, this reader gets a chance, the reader gets a chance to see how your therapist is not there to tell you what to do, but to help you recognize your own patterns. It's funny, it's candid, it's honest, it's very personal, and I think it's quite illuminating. If you've ever wondered if therapy is for you, this might be a good book to pick up. And lastly, just briefly here, we've got This Is How We Love by Lisa Moore, which is a fiction book. It is. So I was talking with a girlfriend about this book, and our conversation strayed into the topics of resiliency and mental health. So the the story behind this book is there's a 21-year-old young man. He's beaten and stabbed in a vicious attack. His mother flies home from Mexico just before things shut down for COVID to be with him. And then a video of the attack surfaces, and his mother's trying to make sense of what she sees and what she can't make what she can't quite make out. So the book really delves into the patterns of our childhood, um, neglect, loss, generosity, and uh, all different types of families. There's a number of different kinds of families that are illuminated in this story. The book rotates between various characters' perspectives, which is something that Moore is really skilled at. And so I think that what we come away from this book with is just what do we owe one another and can we ever step off the path of childhood circumstances? 
So I, it's an excellent book. And we're uh, going to share another one here on our blog, uh, One Good Reason, a Memoir of Addiction and Recovery, Music and Love by Sean McCann. That's at ami.ca slash now blog, where you can find information on all the uh, uh, titles that Karen has brought to us here today. Karen, really appreciate it. A great title list here. And uh, wish you and yours a very happy Thanksgiving weekend as well. And we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. All right, Karen McKay, Communications Manager for the Center for Equitable Library Access, and you can follow Sela uh, on Twitter, at Sela Library. And that is going to do it for us here on Now with Dave Brown. Coming up on Tuesday, a reminder, we're not here on Monday. Dave returns on Tuesday with the show, and that will include Thea Curdy discussing building codes and design for accessible play spaces. Thank you to our guests today, Michelle McQuig, Joita Gupta, Michael McNeely, and Karen McKay. Thanks to Nisreen Abdel-Majid and Rami Muthid for being here as well. And a big thanks to Alex Smythe. And thanks to you for your patience. And thanks to our technical crew here for their hard work because it was a tough Friday. Tough sledding here, but we plowed through together. And I wish you a very happy Thanksgiving weekend. Sending out thank yous to all our crew here. Host Dave Brown, co-host and producer Alex Smythe, sports reporter Brock Richardson, senior show producer Andrika Delanarol, TV technical producer Bruce McLarion, producers Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion jones and our production team Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, and Kingsley Juco. A big thanks to everyone. Have a great weekend. That's it for now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.